Well, um, Alan, if you don't mind, I'm going to share just a little nugget out of our pre-service conversation. All right. So uh, uh, Alan and Elizabeth and I were on, on Zoom beforehand, and we were, we start fellowshipping and asking, you know, kind of how's your week going? And uh, sometimes when people say, how am I doing? And I say, oh, pretty well, or I give some mitigated response. They've, they, uh, they're concerned for me, but it's just this honesty thing. One time, uh, there was a, uh, we, when we lived back in Victorville, I was pastoring uh, the church back there at Genesis Christian Center, and um, the news people were going around uh, talking about, uh, or, or filming people on the street about New Year's resolutions. And so they said, hi, what's your name? My name's Larry McKnight. What do you do? I'm a pastor. Oh, well, what's your New Year's resolution? I said, I want to be a more honest person. The reason I said that was because that was really what I was thinking about and I was committed to. But it stirred up a big stink among some of my friends and family. And like, gosh, you're a pastor. Why are you saying you're going to be more honest? Anyway, so when somebody asks me how you doing, I'll think about it for a second and then I'll, I'll try to, to make it an accurate response. So anyhow, I'm doing pretty good. Pretty good. So anyway... We were talking about what we're doing, and Alan was talking about some, uh, some stuff he was facing this week, but, but how precious it was that uh, the Lord was there. And, and he brought up the thing about, in all your ways, acknowledge him. And as I listened to you talk, brother, that's exactly what I heard. And I realized how, in my mind, the words acknowledge, the, in all, his ways, all your ways, acknowledge him. So now our ways, are not, our, our ways are not the subject of that. They can be whatever they are. So, you know, if you're having a, a, a week that's full of good ways or bad ways or intermediate ways, mixed ways, the issue is to acknowledge the Lord. But I used to think for many years that that meant that I had to have a preset understanding of who God was and I had to have a way to announce the goodness of that in spite of the way my week was or the way I was facing and the way my way was. Now, we were emphasizing the fact that, no, you just go, acknowledge the Lord is like this. Wow. Oh, you're here. You're here. That's incredible. I mean, uh, you know, you might have just unfortunately had somebody run a uh, red light and wipe the front of your car out. Oh, you're here. You see what I'm saying? It was so beautiful, Alan. It was just so beautiful to, to share and, and to fellowship in that. And what a difference, I think, that understanding of that scripture makes. You know, you're here. Because when God's someplace, uh, it's different, right? So, well, so uh, we are being called into Jesus. That's kind of a generic title for the first slide. Uh, this is a, a logical step forward, in my mind anyway, from what we talked about last few weeks uh, and, and in subsequent weeks, or previous weeks, I'm sorry. Uh, we, uh, we talked about childness, and then one of the manifestations of childness is innocence. That kind of came out of the interaction during the Mueller conference and stuff, which I liked. And then I feel like the Lord's spoken to me about the next uh, detail that we're going to look at about the childness and trying to understand it and engage it and it, the, it's simplicity. And so I'm always guilty when the Lord shares something like that to me that I assume it's going to be um, simple, and, and simplicity should be simple. 
But I don't know that it'll be simple. It might be super complex. Uh, but anyway, so that's where we're going. But today, I want to link back the concept that we've been looking at from innocence back to the idea of, of childness. And, and um, so we're called, being called into Jesus. Not to Jesus. Into Jesus. And I hope that I can make somewhat of a case for that in the next little while, okay? So here's the, the, the verse that I first looked at and, and the Lord used to help me launch into an understanding of, of the significance of being like a child. And he called a child to himself and set him before them. And then he said, and we'll get into what he said in just a second. But he called a child to himself and he set him before them. Now, in a minute, we're going to look at another version of this that is even more telling of the, of the scenario, more descriptive, and it talks about where Jesus took him in his arms, the child in his arms. And so this is where the whole childness thing came from in my heart, Matthew here. And so it goes on, and it says, at that time, the disciples came to Jesus, and it was based on this question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom? In the Matthew version, they just asked the question outright, and in the Mark and the Luke version, they're walking along and uh, they're kind of kibitzing with themselves over which of them is going to be the greatest in the kingdom. And Jesus heard that and knew it in his spirit or in his, with his ears. And he goes into and he pulls a child in the midst. And I believe it's the, the Mark version that leads commentators to think that maybe this child was one of Peter's children. Because in that version, they're in Capernaum. And quickly, the thing gets in there where he heals Peter's mother-in-law and various other things like that. So, but this is the question this is based on. And so what I, all I, wanted, I want you to think about is, is that the, the disciples were thinking in the right direction. Even if they were thinking in the wrong way. They were thinking in the right direction. They were investing their expectations in the kingdom not just in this world, okay? So uh, I, I'm unwilling to uh, throw them under the bus um, and just make this a bad thing that they were doing, an ego thing or whatever. But this is the question that led to it. So what Jesus is getting ready to do is answer what it's like and who is going to be greatest or great in the kingdom of heaven. And so is it okay to want to be great in the kingdom of heaven? I think it is. I think it is. I think it's difficult. Jesus had to do some instruction saying, you know, you're not to lord it over people like the Gentiles do and so on and so forth. So I think there has to be instruction about greatness as it relates to the kingdom because greatness in the world carries a lot of perversion and a lot of competition and a lot of great at other people's expense. But the kingdom clearly doesn't have to do that. But I don't know that we understand why it doesn't have to do it. And I'm hoping that if I have a a little bit of a grasp on that. I'm going to be able to share that tonight. So that's what I want you to be listening to, the answer to this question about being great in the kingdom. So the rest of the verse says, and he called a child to himself and set him before them. And he said, and this is what he said now, truly I say to you, unless you are converted and become like children, you will not enter the kingdom of heaven. Whoever then humbles himself as this child, he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. So there's a couple of things here. What The answer to the question, who then is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven, is he is the greatest in the kingdom of heaven 
who then humbles himself like this child. Okay? So children are kingpins, centerpieces in heaven. In uh, later, uh, the disciples didn't obviously get this. He didn't get, they didn't get it because in the next chapter, uh, after we go through the rich young ruler and after we go through some challenges of the Pharisees, there was a section in, in uh, chapter 19 where some kids were being brought to Jesus so he could bless them, and the disciples rebuffed them. And Jesus was angry about that. And he said, suffer the little children to come to me. So obviously, just through this one interaction with the one child in the midst, uh, they didn't get the full picture that's going on, which is okay, because I've never got the full picture the first time. But the Lord is patient, and he stays with us. And this is a topic worth staying with. There's another place that goes on. that uh, He he contrasts this in, in the next verse, verse 6, but I didn't put it up there. But it says, so, and whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. And then in this passage, it goes on to say, but whoever causes one of these little ones to stumble, it would be better if a heavy millstone were tied around his neck and he were thrown into the sea. So the contrast is is enough to make this seem like an important statement. That was one of the first things that struck me, that this is important enough to Jesus and we ignore it just totally. You know, we ignore it. We, we, We look for other ways into the kingdom. We expect to have access to the kingdom through ministry and through other things. But most of us aren't looking to become like little children. So that last line, I want to look at it a little bit. And whoever receives one such child in my name receives me. What does that mean to you? To receive one such child in Jesus' name. Does that mean when the child comes up, and someone says, like the parent says, is this child welcome? You go, yes, in Jesus' name. Like you put on the end of your prayer or something. I don't think it means that. I think it means more than that. Now, I didn't really know what it meant. And I'm not sure that I absolutely 100% do now. But I got some instruction by an author named George McDonald. I've been in this McDonald class for a while, and I've been reading his stuff for a while. And he has a book called, uh, it's a, uh, two or three volume set called Unspoken Sermons. Uh, George MacDonald lived in the 18, early 1800s, and he was in the midst of Calvinist um, Scotland and Scottish Calvin Presbyterianism, and he just developed an entirely different understanding of the goodness of the Father and of the relationship of the Father to his children. And so he makes an interesting suggestion but you won't see it out of the Matthew passage. It's going to be here in the Mark passage. So this is a parallel thing in, in Mark. Taking a child, he set him before them, and taking him in his arms. So there's a couple things to learn on the, the first verse there. Jesus set the child before the disciples. And this was the instance where they were still questioning about who's going to be the greatest, and Jesus knew it. So he set the child in the midst of them for their benefit. Okay, not just for his, theirs. What Jesus did to the child when he set him in the midst is he took him in his arms. And I think that's important for some reason. And those are things that I didn't used to think was important because it didn't speak to a doctrine or something. But I, I'm not that way anymore, and I think these things are important, and I get a lot of life and a lot of joy out of the fact. Just sitting there for a little bit, envisioning this little kid being taken into Jesus' arms. And so... Was he squirming? Didn't say so. Did he come when Jesus said, come here and get in the midst? 
Yes, he did. Does this give us a clue to what he meant in the other verse about whoever humbles himself like this little child? That's what got me thinking about how do we, how do we feel about what we're being called to when we say that we're being called to follow Jesus or we're being called to Jesus. And I think, Alan, it goes back to our idea of acknowledging God. If nothing else, the little child that Jesus spoke about in the Matthew passage was humble enough to respond and to be brought into the midst of the circle of the disciples. And according to this part of the story, humble enough to be taken up in Jesus' arms. Now, I don't know whether Jesus was sitting down there and kneeling down there and wrapped his arms around him or picked him up, or if he was a little kid or a taller kid or big kid, I don't know. But I, I don't mind imagining it. I don't mind thinking about it. I don't mind asking the Holy Spirit to give me some insight into it. And I'm not required to make that doctrine and, and prove to all you guys that I'm right about what I saw. What I know is this little guy, this little child, I think it's a child, I think it's a boy, but I'm not sure. The little child was brought into the midst of these disciples to represent the answer to their question about who's going to be great in the kingdom of God. And was it protectively maybe that Jesus took him in his arms? <laughs> you know, because he wants to make sure that, that using him as an example is not going to be threatening or detrimental or something. I don't know. Anyway, it was very personal. It was very wonderful. Uh, taking a child, he set them before him and taking him in his arms, he said to them, whoever receives one child like this in my name receives me. Now that's the same thing that it says up in Matthew, but look at what goes on in Mark, something else. And whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. So here's what George MacDonald suggested, and I liked it. He said, the thing we can learn from this if we understand what it means to accept a child in Jesus' name, is he said it wasn't accepted because Jesus commanded them to accept the child. And it was just like a, like a law in his name. He encouraged the disciples that there's value in accepting this child in my name because he, the child, represents me. And so I remember one of the first questions that I was asked when I shared my thoughts on childness to a group of pastors uh, up at Harold Eberle's um, conference. One of the, the, it, uh, a meeting has arisen from that. Once a month I meet with a group of pastors and we talk about childness. And uh, one of the first questions was, is Jesus a child? And should we think of Jesus as a child? And I didn't have the, a particular answer to the question early when I was first doing it. But now, of course, the answer is obviously yes. I understand that totally. And I even understand that it was not at all necessary for Jesus to be born. He could have been made. He could have been manifest as an adult. And some would say, well, no, no, he had to be born because Adam was born. No, Adam wasn't born in that way. Adam was formed from the dust in the ground, and God breathed into him. So Jesus could have been the second Adam and been made the same way the first Adam was. Right? I mean, I, I've never thought about it before, but yes. And uh, because I've been studying about the, the watchers and the fallen angels and all that kind of stuff, he could have done it with a big fanfare, and God could have popped him down right on top of Mount Hermon, filled him with a spirit, 
baptize them at the base still and and still overcome all the the history of of all of that jazz but he but he didn't what he did is he chose to come and he chose to send and to give as a child in Mary's womb and he he was a full-term baby from every indication and he was born the way babies are normally born that means that this union between uh, the Spirit of God, the Spirit of the Father, and this young woman created Jesus at a stage where he was just a zygote. The King of the universe, Savior of the world. It was two cells, sort of, or one cell and a cell placeholder by the Spirit. I don't know how that worked. A miracle. But I know eventually he got more cells. <laughs> because he had him that made his hair and made his arms and made his feet, made his lips and made his beard and made his voice work with his voice box. But that's how God chose to come. He chose to come as a child. And so, yes, Jesus, the Savior of the world, not just the Savior of the world. So, whoever receives me does not just receive me, but receives him who sent me. So then McDonald's goes, and so in like manner, to receive Jesus because you recognize the childness in the child means that you also receive the Father and you recognize the childness in the Father. Now, I don't know how to make that more important. And I don't... I. I just know that it is. Because the image that we portray, most of us, in, in church over the last 1,500 years or whatever, the image we portray that seems to give the most honor to God is a monarch's image, a throned image, where you have steps going up. And, and I understand why, because there's the throne. And we're called to go to the throne of grace to receive grace to help in time of need, and we see pictures of it in Revelation. So I'm not against it. We've seen the throne in prophetic times and ascension times. But the God that is utterly defined by the throne and unapproachable glory, lightnings and thunderings, is not the heart, the core of the God we serve. Because if that was the case, he wouldn't be able to be received by receiving the child. There's something childlike about our Father that was manifest in the person of Jesus by choice, by will, by design. And it it's, has something to do with the childlikeness that we're called to. So, um, I don't know how to go much beyond that one, but I thought that was ultra profound, and it touched my heart. That we receive the child, because he's a child, and that's the act of receiving him in Jesus' name, because Jesus presented him, Jesus held him, Jesus put him there. Then, if we, and Jesus says, you don't just receive me, you receive the Father. So, there is a childness to our Father. I want to go back to a verse that we really like, and it's in John, and 1420 is the one that we speak about a lot, because it's, a, it's an extremely wonderful promise. It's the promise that after the work of the Holy Spirit has taken place, after the outpouring of the Holy Spirit, 
Jesus says that you will know. You will know. Now, granted, he was speaking to the disciples at that time, but I see so much of this stuff opening up to us. I see Pentecost opening up all the truth and the reality of this to us that, I, that I'm fine believing that it's a promise for us. And Jesus also in John 17 said, I don't only pray for these, talking about his disciples, but I pray for those that are going to believe on me because of their word. So I believe on them because of their word. You do too. And I think this is going to apply. I will not leave you as orphans. I will come to you. And after a little while, now there's a very important phrase in here, and I'll highlight it in a second. After a little while, the world will no longer see me, but you will see me. All right? But now look at this. Because I live, what does it say? You will live also. Because I live, you will live also. Why are you spiritually alive? Well, I'm spiritually alive because I said sinner's prayer. No. I mean, you might, that might have played a role in it. I'm spiritually alive because I believe in Jesus. Mm, that's getting closer. You are spiritually alive because Jesus lives. Paul said it in Romans. He said that uh, we are reconciled by his death on the cross. But we are um, but we live because he is alive. We are saved because he's alive. Reconciliation is the work of the cross. Life is the work of life. Jesus is life. Okay? Now, take that thought, because I live, you will also live, or you will live also, and plug in, just as a thought and spirit experiment, the maximum value. That means that Jesus came to share his life with us. And the life that we live as believers is the shared life of Jesus Christ. It's not an independent, redeemed spiritual life. It is literally the life that Jesus lives. Now, the dominant characteristic of Jesus' life is the one he says here. In that day, you will know that I am in my Father. The life that Jesus came to share with us is the life that he knows of the Father. The life he shares with the Father. And so in that day, you will know that I am in my Father, and you are in me, and I am in you. And this is why, just a few verses before this, he can make such outrageous and unqualified claims is, uh, is if you believe in me, the works that I do, you'll do greater works. Because we're not having to appeal to an external source to do that. We're simply living out the life that Jesus lives. And there's a mystery to this, and I don't fully understand it, and you can ask me questions in just a minute because we're going to have time for it. And I won't necessarily have the answers to you because I don't know the mechanics of how that works. I know that the Spirit, uh, Paul says in Ephesians, makes room in our heart through faith so that Jesus can live. And the Spirit uh, raised Jesus from the dead. God raised Jesus from the dead, but uh, there's this work of the Holy Spirit that is making the living vitality, the living life of Jesus, who knows the Father intimately, accurately, 
makes that your life and my life. So this is why I'm saying this whole thing about this childness is super important. Because if we receive the child, we receive Jesus. And if we receive Jesus, we know the Father. And if we try to know the Father another way, we make ourselves a Pharisee. Because the Pharisees had their religious structure going, and Jesus' accusation against them, his complaint against them, was prior to when he said, you search the scripture, thinking in them you find life, and there that which testify of me, but you won't come to me. Prior to that, he said, you've never heard my father's voice nor seen his form. Well, that was only partially true. And I'm not calling Jesus a liar, but they were looking at Jesus when he said that, and they didn't recognize it. Because later he tells his disciple who was saying, show us the father. And he says, have I been with you so long that you don't know when you've seen me, you've seen the father. So there is something amazing going on here. And it adds so much significance to the verse in Mark where he says, when you receive this child in my name, you receive me. And you don't only receive me, you receive the father. So something about the identifying with this child, believing this child is pretty significant. All right. Does that make sense? Sort of. So that is a really big deal. All right, now here's a big one. This is back in the prologue to John, and this is one of the foundational things that the Lord spoke to me about, about childness that I, I need to come to grips with and believe. And it's, so there was a true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. Obviously, this is talking about the Logos. It's talking about the Word. It's talking about Jesus. Later, it confirms exactly that. There was a true light, which coming into the world enlightens every man. He was in the world, and the world was made through him, and the world did not know him. And then here's the part that we concentrated on about childness. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him. Now, we just looked at the process that Jesus gave the disciples to receive him. Receive the child. Okay? Honor this child. Recognize the childness in this child. And, and, and receive him as the greatest in the kingdom. Receive him as the model of the fulfillment of your ambition to be great in the eyes of God in the kingdom. The child is the key. That's cool. <laughs> All right. He came to his own, and those who were his own did not receive him. But as many as received him, to them he gave the right to become children of God, even to those who believe in his name, who were born not of blood, nor of the will of the flesh, nor the will of man, but of God. So, as many as received him, he gave the right to become the children of God. Um, when we went through this, I did a, a lot of work, and I, I believe this with all my heart. That's not to say that prior to this receiving of him, there's nothing about us that is children. We were conceived as children of the Father before he created the worlds. Now, I'm not talking about pre-existence of the soul or any of that kind of stuff. I'm saying in the mind and heart of the Father. As he cast his vision forward, men were created as conceived, not created yet, conceived as his children. And then all that he did as a creator, he did as a father. And so I say with absolute assurance, and I'm waiting for somebody to try to prove me wrong, that God is your father before he is your creator. He is your father by conception. And this new birth experience, born of him, because we receive, then endues us with the power to become, be born as that which he has conceived us to be. 
It does not create the conception. It manifests the conception. Who are born, not of blood or the will, but of God. So there's something about our born-again-ness that releases us into the childhood that God has conceived us and designed us to be. All right, now, I thought this was interesting because you talk about government, Judith. This scripture has completely expanded in my significance in relationship to childhood. It's always been one of my favorite messianic passages, one of my favorite governmental passages. For many years, I've linked it directly to the concept of the new covenant. That this is where the new covenant finds its beginning and root. I know, I know the new covenant is literally prophesied in Jeremiah 30, 31, but this is the, the revelation of the covenantial aspect of the throne of David and everything else. For a child will be born to us, a son will be given to us, and the government will rest upon his shoulders. The government of the kingdom. And his name, this is the child born and the son given. And his name will be called Wonderful Counselor Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace. So, as weird as what George MacDonald might have sounded, said, might have sounded to you, I'm going to appeal back to this prophetic revelation in Isaiah that the Eternal Father is a child born to us and a son given. Now, I, I don't pretend to say in this that, um, that there's not a distinction within the persons of the Trinity between the Father, Son, and Spirit, and that there is an aspect in which the Father is the Father and not the Son, and the Son is the Son and not the Spirit, or not the Father. But what I am saying is that there is a oneness here that goes beyond our understanding. And there is a, there is a reality here that goes beyond our understanding. And so if we just let it say what it says and don't insist on, and I'm the only one here, probably guilty of trying to do this, don't insist on this, just me explaining every detail. It just prophesied that. For a child will be born to us, and a son will be given to us, and the government will rest on his shoulders, and his name will be called Wonderful Counselor, Mighty God, Eternal Father, Prince of Peace, and there will be no end to the increase of that government that you talked about, Judith, or of peace. And the covenant of David, the covenant of worship, the promise that he would always have somebody from his line on the throne is fully, fully manifest in this on the throne of David and over his kingdom to establish it and to uphold it with justice and righteousness from then on and forevermore. The zeal of the Lord of hosts will accomplish this. That, I don't even pretend to understand everything that is going on with that. It's amazing. though. It's amazing. And we're witnessing it at the incarnation of Jesus. We're witnessing it in our own lives, the participation in this, in our born-again experience, when that which God conceived us as is now endued with the power to become, the genomai power to be made, to get in the process. And here we go. So this is a huge deal. The honor that Jesus was giving the disciples the chance to extend to that little guy in their midst is directly connected with the eternal plan of the ages for the government, the kingdom of God, that will extend forever 
up to and including when Jesus presents the kingdoms, and I think it's uh, 1 Corinthians 15 or something, Jesus presents all the kingdoms of this world, and they become the kingdom of our God, and then God is all in all. I don't know what that means. I don't, I don't know how to d- diagram that on a chalkboard or something. But what I know is that this is the plan that at that moment is going to be consummated. And then we jump back to Jesus' instruction in the Gospels about children, and he says, don't despise one of these little ones, because of such as these is the kingdom. Not only are are the little ones the greatest in the kingdom, they are the kingdom. They are the citizens of the kingdom. And so now it makes perfect sense that Jesus said, unless you're converted and becomes a little child, you adult, reasoning, rationing, arguing, disciples of mine, unless you are converted and becomes a little child, you won't enter the kingdom. And it makes perfect sense that when Nicodemus was trying to flatter Jesus, honorably so, and said to him, good teacher, we know that, that you're uh, from God because nobody can do what you do without it. Jesus didn't say, well, thank you. Or he didn't answer like he did to Peter. Well, um, flesh and blood didn't reveal that to you, my father. What he said was, verily I say to you, unless you are born from above, born again, you won't even see the kingdom. And then they got in a little bit of back and forth, and Jesus said, no, you won't enter the kingdom if you're not born from above. This is what he's talking about. And this whole interface with children, this whole becoming like a child, is the way. Okay? Turning and becoming like little children is the repentance. It is the repentance that receives the child born and the son given. It doesn't just receive the child that Jesus pulled in their midst. It doesn't just allow us to receive Jesus and become that child and to receive the Father. It receives the government. It receives the kingdom. It receives the plan. That's why it's perfectly understandable now that um, when you receive me, you receive the Father. That's why it's perfectly understandable that unless you are converted and become as a little child, and that's not a work that we just do as a mental exercise. That's a work that is done by the Spirit of God in our lives. But we can receive it. We can believe it. We can believe on the name of Jesus. That's what it says in the prologue to John. That is the repentance. And I don't know how to explain it, really. I'm just telling you that I'm declaring it. This is the repentance that allows us to receive child born, the son given, the kingdom of God, and to participate and move into the government. So I want to tell you a story to close, and then we're going to have at least a few minutes for questions. The mic's open. The story is uh, about two, two little kids and a dad. And it's a story that happened in Baxter Kruger's life. And uh, if you know Baxter Kruger, that's good. And if not, I'm not going to take the time to explain who he is. He's a theologian. But um, so one day... He was, uh, it was a Saturday. He was getting ready to watch a football game. Old Miss, I think, who he said he was going to watch. And he was sorting through mail on his couch or on his recliner in front of the TV. And he, he noticed some movement out of the side of his eyes. This is in his den. And over there where the door is, he saw two camouflage hat and fully camouflaged faces 
start to peek out around the door jamb into the den. And he recognized his son, who was about nine years old, and he saw that his son had a friend. And before he had time to think about it, they come out, and now they're fully camouflaged. They got camouflage shirts, pants, they got rubber knives, they got guns and everything, and they just come screaming across the room, jump on him, knock the chair over backwards, the mail goes all over the floor, and he said for about 15 minutes they wrestled on the floor until he was completely submitted and exhausted. And they were laying there, and they all burst out laughing, and they were playing. And he said a ticker tape, he's a Presbyterian at the time, so he wasn't accustomed to voices, but he said, I did hear it too. But a ticker tape ran through his mind, and it said, Baxter, pay attention, this is important. And he started thinking, what do you mean, Lord? And he looked, and he took the situation in, he said, just, couple of kids playing with a kid's dad. Or, and then he realized something. He had never met his son's friend. He didn't know his name. Never met him. And the question rose up in his heart, if your son had been playing out in the backyard or in his room on a Nintendo, and this little boy had stuck his face around the corner of the door, would he ever have run over here and tackled you? There's no way. He didn't know you. He probably wasn't even sure that you were Mr. Kruger. So what happened that led to this last 15 minutes of exuberance and joy? That little boy shared the life of his son. And most particularly, he shared the knowledge that that son, his son, had of him as his dad and was able to fully engage in it. To play, to be wild, to be rough and tumble, to knock the chair over, to mess the mail up. And God said, this is the gospel. This is what my son came to bring you. He shares his life and knowledge of me with you. And you have it. You really do have it. Isn't that amazing? I think that's an amazing story. It took me a little longer to tell. We've only got a couple minutes. But, because uh, Laura will be out here at 7.30. Um, I guess all I'm really hoping for from tonight is that the accumulated weight of what we've been talking about, about innocence and childness, that it settle on you in such a way that you realize that our Christianity is not a thing that we're called to, to create some sort of acceptable walk with the Lord. We are being called into, into Jesus' life. He has come and given himself to us. In John 12, when he said, when, when I, the Son of Man, be lifted up, I will draw all or drag all into myself. He shared our stuff so that we could share his stuff. St. Irenaeus said that, that he was made like us so that we could be like him. 
Now, there's obviously limits to that. He's the, the second person in the Trinity, the king of the universe. But as to the life that he shares, that's ours. If we will take it, if we will receive it, if we will believe it. And, and, and the, the, the receiving and believing doesn't put us in a different status. Got to understand this. It doesn't put us in a different status like, okay, I'm out, and because I believe, now I'm in. No, it gives us a life. It, it, it causes us to partake of life. The life that has been the dynamic and the beauty between the Father, Son, and Holy Spirit forever and will be forever. This is really what salvation is. It's not getting a ticket punch to heaven. It's sharing in the life that Jesus knows of his Father and has enjoyed forever. And if you need more proof of it, read the end of John chapter 17. He's sharing glory with us so that, Father, they'll be one as we are one, and you can love them with the same love you love me. Okay, anybody got a thought or anything? Yeah, jump up. Can you move the slides back to Matthew 18, please? The, I'll try. Like five, six, there. Uh, that, that's the one I wanted, actually. Oh, that one? Okay. The one with... Uh, Both of those? Okay. Yeah. So what you're doing is opening up more and more of childness mm -hmm. to me, and I realize now that I have no clue still. Um, but there's some stuff here that actually really confuses me a okay. little. The latter part of the bottom scripture says, whoever receives me does not receive me, but him who sent me. Yeah. By so, receiving a child yeah. seems a little confusing. I know. So because my mind tries to make sense of things, mm -hmm. I came up with an idea, and I was wondering what you thought of it, the idea that a child... It also ties into the idea of humbleness of a child. Whoever, mm -hmm. whoever humbles, humbles himself like this little child. Like this child. Yeah. And so my first thought was, well, I don't know if all kids humble themselves. Maybe this was something for way back when, when kids were more humble. Or maybe it's for all time. I don't know. But you kind of addressed that a little bit. Um, but what I came up with is the idea that a child is a creation of the parents. Mm -hmm. So the idea of creation might play a role, just one layer of the complexity mm -hmm. of illness, so that um, the child knows they didn't make themselves mm -hmm. at some point. Mm -hmm. But they're also, they're also not, uh, not in a position to fret over those kind of questions. Children aren't. They're just, okay. Uh, right. I, yeah. But that, and that... Like I said, this is a layer. Mm -hmm. You know, it's not the whole. Yeah, any I'm, not, I'm not against it. I, I don't but, know any of us in the room that have talking, a better layer to talk about. He's, he's talking to adults, it seems, saying become like a child. So mm -hmm. the, the adults have this concept of potentially what makes a child special. Mm -hmm. And there's an idea, or at least I started playing with it, and so just curious what you thought about the definition of the child is the creation of the parents. Mm -hmm. That can tie into this here because the creation of Jesus, sort of. Yeah. And I, I do think that, that that's kind of what I mean when I say God conceived of us and was our father before. Yeah. But I think to be, I think to be committed to that thought is uh, nothing wrong with it. But I, I still don't quite get 
how when we receive Jesus, we're receiving, when we receive a child, that we're receiving Jesus, and when we receive Jesus, we're receiving his Father. Yeah. Except for maybe some kind of a creation concept. Mm-hmm. Idea. Yeah, no, no, that's good. That's good. I think that's good. I'm not trying to blow you off. I just want to yeah. honor the on a time situation. Yes, Rich. Uh, this won't take more than 30 minutes. Yeah. <laughs> just, just a quick thought, a comment. Okay. Before Adam sinned, he had no awareness of himself. Children have no awareness of themselves, typically. A one-year-old can cry and write a Next to it, another one-year-old is not affected. Will start to cry. There's a, there's a, this attachment to each other mm-hmm. that's not related to self. So, and Jesus, of course, didn't do the things that pleased himself. So that was just a, a thought to. Mm-hmm. Yeah. See, I think that kind of uh, it's a weird blend. I, th- I think what we're being a- given access to in children is a weird blend of self-consciousness that's innocent and pure and not self-consciousness that draws them into competition and other things like that. That's a good, that's a good comment. And I don't have, okay, gotcha. I don't have uh, all these answers, but this is the beauty. We don't have to. There was a time I thought I knew how you could receive Jesus, receive the Father, do all this kind of stuff. I'm a whole lot more comfortable now thinking and I don't think that any of us here that have reached out and been born again aren't born again. Don't get me wrong. That's not what I'm saying. What I'm saying is this is more simple and more amazing. So here's why I'm moving a few chairs. Thank you, Ronnie. Uh, these little guys are obviously going to worship, and they're unimpeatable, <laughs> which is great. I would encourage some of you, if you can, to step up and worship with them. That would be a good start. And uh, they're shorter than most of you, so don't step on them. And I'm going to take my big clodhopper shoes off, so if I do, I, I won't damage them. But I do open the front up to you. There's some, I noticed somebody brought some more streamers and stuff, which is awesome. So there's actually probably enough stuff for everybody in the room if you want to. I'm not trying to force you to. And you can grab something and go back there if you want, or you can just wave your arms, or you can sit there and worship in the way you're accustomed to worshiping. I, I don't have a, I'm not trying to make a command out of it, but I really, there are children in our midst, which is what Jesus did to the disciples, made happen with the disciples. So I would encourage you to take advantage of it.